Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cup podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last eight years, I've done more than 350 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, we've got another fan-requested interview. We're talking to Jeffrey Richmond, ACE, and Erica Marker, ACE, two of the editors of the Apple TV Plus series, Severance. Jeffrey was nominated this year for two primetime Emmys for editing different episodes of Severance. He's also been nominated for an Emmy for his work on The Tiger King. He's also won three Ace Eddies for his work on Escape from Danamora and two different documentaries, The Cove and Sicko. He also won the special jury prize at Sundance for editing the documentary Murderball. Erica was also nominated this year for a primetime Emmy for one of her episodes of Severance. She also cut the feature film Baked in Brooklyn and TV series including The First Lady, Fosse Verdon, and The Good Fight. Before we hop into our discussion with them, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no-limits 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris FX. I've been using Boris FX and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris FX is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, check out all of their tools, including Sapphire and Mocha Pro, at borisfx.com slash artofthecut. Also, if you want to read this interview with great visual support and trailers, you can go to blog.borisfx.com. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, my discussion with Jeffrey Richmond, ACE, and Erica Marker, ACE. Tell me a little bit about how you got onto the show. First of all, was it a team that you knew? Was it an interview that you did that you were like, I love this script? Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, Sure. Well, it was a combination of things. I had worked with Endeavor before from other projects. I've known Jeff a long time. I didn't know Ben. So I did interview with Ben. He actually had like a broken notes when I met him and I was like, oh God, was that your last interview? Did that go badly? (laughs) And he was like, no, it was from basketball. But, you know, we had a really nice interview and I loved the script, obviously. And, you know, we went through some lookbooks and, you know, he showed me some of the stuff he was thinking about in terms of what the building was going to look like and the space. And I was like, yeah, I'm in. Was there an idea of other media that was similar to what he wanted, either the feel of the editing or the pacing or... There was a feeling you got from reading the scripts, for sure. Like, I had worked with Ben previously on Escape at Denimora, and I had a sense of pacing from that show. And so that's all I really had in my mind going in, is just the sort of sensibilities that were learned and brought over from that show. But that didn't 
necessarily stick all the way through, obviously, because it's a different show, but just as a starting point. And some of it was relevant, like a slower pacing and like holding on things longer and forcing yourself to like question whether you really needed to cut in a lot of places. As they shot more and they got more into like Lumen and the dynamics between MDR and it kind of called for a little bit like a snappier pace, then it opened it up to a wider range of pace and style and things like that. Well, you mentioned tone, which I thought is interesting because there's the tone for those of you, I'm assuming maybe have seen the show. If you haven't, it's broken between work life and a home life and that they're separated. They're, they, they can't be joined. You can't feel something or know something in one world that you know in the other. Is there also a tonal shift in the way that you edit or is it just the way it's shot? I didn't think really that there was much of a tonal shift in the way it was cut. The cutting patterns were scene by scene. They weren't interior by exterior. You know, some things are more hectic. They take place inside and some things are more chaotic outside. And those were cut based on those scenes. You know, the sound was different inside and outside. You know, the break room has a specific sound because things happen in the break room that have a lot of sound, like the projector and everything. But Outside sounds a lot more lively. There's all this ambient sound and inside there's not. And the camera work is very tight inside and very steady. And the camera work outside is a little more alive because we're outside. But I don't feel like the cutting in particular was specific to the space. The decisions on, at least in the first cut of like how to approach it, are very much driven by your reaction to the footage that you're watching, just your first impressions of it. And, you know, the way things are shot dictate what's happening in the scene. So if there's like a lot of people talking and it has sort of like a lighter vibe, then like you kind of just feel free to jump around a little bit more. What kind of collaborative discussions are you having further down the line? Are you going through a director's cut and then showrunner's cut after that? Or are they combined? As stuff was coming in, we were cutting just the first cuts of everything. Ben likes to see stuff as we're cutting. So it wasn't like completely in the dark as far as cutting the scenes and then getting to an official like editor's cut and then revealing it to the director and getting his notes. It was a much more ongoing process from the minute the dailies come in. We would get the dailies for a scene and cut together like a first cut. I would just like set it aside and then move on to the next scene. And then at some point I would circle back to it and refine it a little bit. And once I was comfortable with it, send it off to Ben, get his notes on it. And then as we were continuing to cut other dailies, go back and make changes to the earlier cuts. So it's this like circle of activity where by the time you get to the official director's cut period, we've already worked with Ben back and forth and gotten notes. And even because of the remote editing, we were able to squeeze in off hours sessions, like an hour here, a couple hours there. It was a kind of a blurry line between like editor's cut and director's cut. And then obviously since Ben was also a producer, like there wasn't really a distinction between director's cut and producer's cut. There was just a certain point at which we had done a pass on every scene with Ben and then felt comfortable sharing it with other people internally. How technically were you sharing those things that picks or Frame.io or some? Picks. It was picks. Yeah, picks. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's interesting with that idea of the director's cut, even though you've had time for the director to see a scene or something, is now you're seeing things in context during that director's cut sharing. Erica, can you talk about some of the things that you would discover as you saw those scenes in context, as opposed to when you were just firing off a single scene to the director? 
One of the things that we all realized as we were putting it together was that the intercutting of the scenes as scripted was not how it was going to end up standing. By doing that intercutting, we would see opportunities for pickup shots. And that only happened once the scenes came in that filled in the gaps. You know, when we were cutting them originally, I mean, my first pass of everything was as scripted. And then after we did it, Ben immediately was like, can we try this a different way? Can we try this a different way? And, you know, initially, since I'd never worked with Ben before, I was like, oh no, like this isn't what he wanted. But that's not, it's not that he didn't want it. It's that he really wants to exhaust every possibility to see how can this work best. And it's crazy because his footage is so specific in the way it's framed and the way the performances are, but he gives you a lot of leeway in terms of how it can be put together. There's nothing casual about anything that he shoots, but it's also not usually the kind of footage where it has to go a certain way. It's there and it's so flexible. And then he wants to see that flexibility in all of its iterations. Can you describe a specific example of what you're talking about where you might try intercutting a scene that was not scripted intercut? PD has done his attempt at reintegration, which everybody knows the procedure isn't reversible, and he's tried to have it reversed anyway, which has catastrophic results. And he has all of the head pains and everything. And the way the end of that episode is scripted is he thinks he's outside Mark's house. He's hallucinating. He's here. He's there. He's completely disoriented. And he ends up at a bodega and ends up thinking it's still Lumen. And he's like trying to get the food and he thinks he needs tokens and whatever. And that was scripted to stand alone as a scene where PD is in the bodega. He's freaking out. He can't tell what's going on. He falls onto the ground, hemorrhages, the ambulance comes, you know, he dies. And then separately, there was Mark leaving Lumen, Mark getting home, realizing PD's not there. And that's probably really bad. And maybe people have come to either try to get him or abduct him or whatever. He drives around looking for him. He arrives at the bodega as PD is dying. Well, I cut them as two separate things originally, but then it seemed like there was an opportunity to intercut it. But the final product of how very much it's intercut, I wouldn't have seen that originally by reading the script or looking at the footage. It was just like, it got more and more intercut as it went through. And now it's a much more exciting visual sequence than it was on the page, just because that level of experimentation was available to us after all the footage came in. The more you work with it, the more opportunities you see to change things. I love that evolution. Can you talk about, Jeff, something that's similar to that, where you experienced being able to evolve a scene from where it was? Most of the scenes that we're working on go through that evolution. You know, you're always just editing blind when you're doing that first cut. You know, like you're just making guesses about what things and how things will play and how it will play in the context of other scenes. And you're always going to see it differently because you're just watching it as a unit, as a thing that's playing. Either it's playing or it's not playing or it's playing a certain way, whether that was your intention or not. A lot of it is based on watching the cut and seeing what's not working about it and then trying to address it in a certain way and then realizing the approach doesn't work. And then you sort of have to like open up what your approach is and expand how far you veer from what it was originally scripted as. Seeing like episode nine in the script, it was far less intercutting. The stretches of time with each character were far longer than what it ended up being in the edit. And that was put together the way it was in the script. It is like an evolution. Like you have to like do the wrong things in order to arrive and understand why it works the way it ultimately does. 
you're collecting the little successes and continue to fix the things that are not working. So ultimately, like you end up with this evolved edit. Yes, it addresses the problems that you started with, but it also becomes something that you never could have predicted in the beginning because you've discovered so many things along the way. Like the exciting thing for me is you get to the end of a process like that and you almost don't remember sometimes exactly like how you got from A to B. It feels special because it's like this other thing that you didn't intellectually build from assembling pieces. It was a much more organic discovery. That's the part of the evolution that's surprising and fun. I used to joke that if the at the beginning of the editing process, you from the future gave yourself the cut, the finished cut, you would reject it. You would be like, no, no, that doesn't work for this reason, this reason, this reason. I feel like you have to go through the process of discovery and finding why all the things that don't work, why they don't work, and why you have to fix things a certain way in order to be in sync with the finished product. I mean, it's the reason it's called editing. It's just, it's constant, <laughs> constant change. You're never going to nail it on the first try and you shouldn't expect to. Like Jeff was saying, we never really presented an editor's cut. It was constantly showing to Ben and then constantly changing it. The post schedule was revised so many times. And I was like, why are we even doing this? Because like, there is no schedule. It's the footage comes and then it gets worked on forever. Some people would disagree that there's no schedule, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, there was a schedule. There was a schedule. It was just, it was very malleable. The intention isn't to nail it. The intention is to think it through as well as you possibly can and then execute the vision of the director as most thoroughly and purely as you can and then say, great, now what can I do with it? It's not ever going to be right until you go through all the possibilities and all the changes and all the notes and all the juxtapositions and then you can still improve upon it. To Jeff's point about if your future self showed you the cut, you'd reject it. Even if you didn't as the editor, the director very well may reject that. Like, where's my vision? Where's what I shot? Well, because you want to get it right, but you can't get it right initially. And that's, and you have to give the director what they shot on the first pass. They have to yeah. see that. Otherwise, they say, well, show it to me. So there's no point in trying to circumvent that. You have to just go step by step. I have those feelings when I show something to a director and they give me a great suggestion. You know, I'm like, why didn't I think of that? (laughs) Well, I don't think you would enjoy working with that director if there was just sort of like (laughs) the first cut you give and they're like, yes, great, moving on. You're like, wait, no, wait, (laughs) I think there's more we could do with this. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. That's so funny. Since we're talking about the evolution of the cut, how much were the shows cut down? You know, what were your editor's cuts like lengthwise compared to finals? I think, yeah, I was just going to say like the finals end up being shorter because the intercutting often paced it up, but overall things weren't really cut. Sometimes things were moved from episode to episode to sort of help with the flow of the information. But overall, there wasn't like a length issue or length target, I feel like, Jeff, right? Yeah, like we would never have two hour edits of any episode or anything like that. I think longest any episode I freaking got was maybe like an hour and 10, maybe something like that. Everything shrunk for sure, like Erica was saying, like just through pacing and getting things to find like a better rhythm, but it wasn't drastic changes in durations. I would be interested in hearing about what you do when you walk in during dailies and you're presented with new material that you haven't seen before and you've got to put it in a timeline. What do you do? 
you know, before I start any project, I always read the script again, right before shooting begins, I always reread it. And then I do the same thing when the dailies come in. They've shot this scene today. I'm going to reread the scene right before I start cutting it and just really picture in my mind, what do I think the scene's supposed to look like? What footage am I anticipating receiving? And what's the story I'm trying to tell in this moment with this scene? The cool thing about Ben's stuff is, you know, I would read the script, I'd picture it and the footage would come in and I was like, nope, nothing I pictured. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because his stuff is just so incredible and it's so inventive and it's like everything that I pictured it was just not there I mean of course there's coverage of the characters and there's wides and there's tights but like the angles that I thought weren't there and so then I had to sort of readjust you know what I pictured to what I had sometimes it's a lot more straightforward but it was really fun in that way to have it not be straightforward because I mean as an editor your job is always to satisfy the vision of the director but in this case that was really clearly the goal because Ben had such a vision always none of the footage was like a throwaway or a phone and it was all mm -hmm. so specific that you really wanted to make sure you were doing service to what Ben had intended to get how do you put the scene together knowing the performances I want but building things based on the angle and the size that I want how are you starting to build the sequence together yeah, I mean, it's funny because Jeff and I do look at our bins in different ways, and I always find that funny. We would share bins in the project all the time, and I would open the bin, and it would be in text view, and I was like, how does he do it? <laughs> I, I can't cut in text view like that at all. It blows my mind. But I mean, I do also cut in frame view, and I also do a thing that most people don't do. In a multicam view within frame view, I also put every camera that was part of the group so that everything is visually represented in the bin. Because like, if you just had the group clip, then you don't necessarily know what those other three camera angles were. And I want them all visually represented in the bin. So my bins have a lot of stuff in them, but you know, I'm only cutting with the group ever. I'm not cutting with the individual camera angles, but they're all there. So I can always say, oh, I do have that medium. I do have that tight shot. Yeah. What about you, Jeff? How are you approaching a new bunch of dailies? Probably a similar process, just not with the thumbnails. I like working more like with the timeline than the bin. So I lay everything out into a string out especially with the multiple cameras. I like putting lots and lots of markers with different colors that mean different things based on how much I like whatever's happening or what it is that's happening. You can't do that on the group clip because you don't know what camera it's referring to. I just break everything apart and have it into a string out where it's like all the different angles separated out into separate clips. And then I just start watching it, whatever it is, like three hours of dailies for a scene, just hit play and start watching. And I start doing markers as I'm watching. I have a very like tedious process that's crawling through mud for the first cut, but it's basically watching everything and not actually pulling selects, just marking with markers so that I don't have to stop and think about stuff. I'm just watching it and experiencing it. So like the more I like something, the more markers I'll put in that spot. So if you look at my timeline, green is like the ultimate. This has to be in a version of the scene somewhere. Green is like the best. And then once I've watched the whole string out, I will go back and pull from the sections I liked and make a select reel. And that's what I'll use to start building the first cut. It's definitely like a long process, but I find by going through the footage twice in that way, first watching it in real time, and then the second time where I go through, not in real time, but just go to the sections I marked and pull them into a new timeline, I kind of learn the footage more by the time I'm starting to cut it. And then I just build the first cut from that. And then once the first cut's built, I may never even use the select reel again, but I definitely will use the markers in that master string out because the select reel is sort of like very specific to that moment in time, but the string out 
that has everything that I will obviously refer back to. Seeing where my markers fall definitely helps throughout the editing process. Another question along the lines of the contextual question is, when do you start assembling the scenes into an act or a reel or the show? Do you do it immediately or are you much more focused on cutting a scene together and not so much worrying about whether it's next to another scene? I definitely keep in mind what it's going to and what it's coming from in thinking about what shot is bringing us in and what shot is bringing us out. But a lot of time we didn't have the adjacent scenes for months because of the way it was shot across all episodes. They were jump around throughout the episode. So we may not even have the scene that comes out adjacent to it for a long time later. So once we start getting scenes that connect to each other, then I like putting it together right away because it changes the way the scene will play. Inevitably, once you put the two together, creates new ideas about the ins and outs of the scene. I find sometimes you have the scene in the scene bin as your first copy. You put it into the longer cut and then people start, you know, weighing and weighing and weighing. And, and then eventually I feel like almost all the time someone will say, can I see what it was? Mm -hmm. And I always want to just have that copy in the scene bin to say, this was my first thought. What do we think about this now? Is there anything we want to recover from here? Yeah. And of course, I back up regularly a gazillion different ways, but just always in the scene bin is my first impression of the scene. And I like to have that as a way to reference that starting point, because you have to know where you're starting to like advance past that. In the columns, I track anytime I share the cut with Ben or someone else. I find that very important information because once you have 50 or 100 versions of a cut, you can't remember that it was version 2A or 7B or whatever it was. You remember it based on where it was in time. You remember that when you shared the cut with these three people, that's where it was at. And that's mm -hmm. the way I, that's the way I remember the state of the cuts, not the version number, but where it was in the process. Somebody I interviewed recently said that they have their assistant actually build out the entire show with slates at the length that they should read in the scene. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of, I, I get the idea of the large gaps because, you know, it depends if you're going to, if you're going to be sending the cut to someone, you're not going to make them sit through five <laughs> right. minutes of titles at a go. That but like brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's, Here's that the way that someone you don't actually want run. to watch the cut. Yeah. <laughs> It's like if, yeah, you don't want them to get to a certain scene, you put that there yeah, before. Erica mentioned something about the sound design, which I thought was interesting. Was Is that something that when you were cutting those episodes, you had specific ambiences that had been recorded or that you guys had created for specific rooms? And then you just go, OK, I know we're in the, the desk pod area or the break room area or a hallway. Some of those hallways are so long. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the sequences, there's like MDR tone that Jeff created very early on that, you know, when we were working on three, I was like, all right, what does MDR sound like? We went back to one and pulled it up. And we're like, oh, here's the sound of MDR. And that was the same that we put into every episode. Some had more specific elements going on. Jacob did the pass on that. Uh, oh, Jacob yeah? Rubikop, the supervising sound editor, he did a pass on MDR. Yeah, it was very early because by the time we were doing sound on three, that was already established. Yeah. During the mix, we actually ended up very fine-tuny, like moving where the beeps and the bloops and the boops fell because they had like a rhythmic element too, like they would fill in like emptiness and things like that. There's a, a level of discomfort that the actors are 
giving you, obviously, but then you're also trying to mold and enhance, I think, by, like you said, holding on a shot, for example. Can you talk a little bit about finding performance that you love and then also shaping that in addition to what the actor's giving you? You know, you start with all the performances that you liked, which includes a range. But then once you start building the scene, you have to start answering the questions about what is needed at each moment. It's not just like what you like, it's about what's gonna work at this moment in the scene. It just shrinks the pool of different performances that you're pulling from because it's answering a certain need at that moment. It's, it's similar like answering to what's not working and addressing it that way. Not that the performances are necessarily bad in any moment, it's just that they're not doing what they need to do for the story at that moment in the cut. Yeah, the, none of the performances were bad ever which is why it was actually really hard, you know, because you would watch the first take and say, okay. And you watch a second take and you're like, oh God. Yeah. And you watch the third take and you're like, that one's good too. And then it's sometimes you watch footage and you say, well, I can't use that. You know, like they didn't get the line right or whatever. And Ben also does such a great thing where if a shot is not framed exactly how he wants, he stops them immediately. So there is almost nothing that's unusable. The actors were flawless. They just always hit the lines, but then they did give a range intentionally. You know, Ben would say, now give it to me this way, give it to me that way. And so it was really just calibrating. When do you turn up the dial on how that person's feeling? Because it was there. We had to like pick what are these characters going to be because the entire range was there for every take. Can you think of something where you sa said, hey, if I had ADR, if I had a another shot, this would be better and then asked for it? I can't think of anything offhand that I necessarily asked for. You know, things came up organically that it was discussed like, oh, this would help the moment. The one that comes to mind immediately is when Petey's hiding and he sees Cobell and she's talking on the phone across the basement. And he has a flash that he like remembers, oh, I think I know who that person is. Even though he's outside of MDR and he's reintegrated Petey, he shouldn't recognize Cobell necessarily. And it, she's not Cobell at the moment. She's the neighbor because, you know, we're in the outside world. But he sees her and he's able to put together that it's Cobell. And, you know, we tried a couple of things with that initially, but then Ben was like, what if I just shoot it? The exact motion that she does when she's on the phone, he shot from the exact distance on the same lens, her doing the exact motion in the office. And then it flashes back and forth between the two. So the connection visually is incredibly clear. PD is seeing this person and remembering her doing that exact thing in the office. And that was the sort of thing that we did fine without that shot. But then with the shot, it was the story was told. It's the sort of thing where through cutting and experimentation and not like quite nailing it with the existing footage, we were able to pick up a shot that made it really, really work. Actually, in the same episode with the same character, <laughs> there was <laughs> we did lots later... of flashing there because <laughs> that episode actually allowed for a lot of that because it is yeah, more it like stylistic yeah. sequences, like in the editing. The, um, the sequence when he's out walking up in the mountains and yeah. you hear like a ghostly voice over him and it's like jump cut through his face while MDR is walking through the perpetuity wing that came out of having too much good footage in the perpetuity wing Correct. and all these <laughs> great shots of Petey like walking on the path. An idea that came out of that, which was to have a voice that is presumably in Petey's head because he's in that state, but reveals itself to be the voice from inside the perpetuity wing. So that was something where then Ben asked Dan, so can you write something? And he wrote up a whole thing that someone read in and then the supervising sound editor added a like 
old audio tape <laughs> sound to it. It allowed us to kind of just be in PD's face and jump cut through it and have all these great shots of the perpetuity wing and not get tired of it because you're hearing this other element at the same time. Yeah, that was actually one of the things that I meant to ask you about because I, when I watched that, the intercutting of that was very interesting to me. So I'm glad that you remembered to talk about that. <laughs> Erica and Jeff, thank you so much for spending some time with us and talking about this really interesting series. Congratulations on a great project. Thank you. Thank you so Thanks for having us. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com slash artofthecut, the new online home of Art of the Cut, where there's tons of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to our guests, Jeffrey Richmond, ACE, and Erica Marker, ACE. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast, and thanks to our partner, Boris Effects, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check out their offer at jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that we've moved, and that they should subscribe right here for more great Art of the Cut interviews every week. Mm-hmm.